Welcome back to Behind the Play. My name is Alex Adams, and today I'm very excited to introduce our guests, Peter Kinlindo and Alexandre Gangé-Husik, I hope I got that right, of the Northern Football Podcast. Um, these guys are great. I love their podcast. And if you are anything interested in the Canadian men's national team, women's team, Canada soccer, these guys are the best podcast. Um, that's how I found them. I started listening to them. And yeah, so thanks so much for coming on, guys. And how's it going? Can't complain. That was a flawless pronunciation there for Alex. He never gets that sort of treatment on the podcast, so I'm sure he'll be happy about that. It was a pleasure to to be joined by fellow Alex, and uh, great always as always to to chat footy. Uh, you know, with fellow people that are passionate about this uh, this sport that we that we love that is so popular worldwide, and we're doing our best to to, to continue to grow that here in in Canada. I, I wanted to just first ask you guys both, um, when did you first kind of think about a career in, in sports journalism? I mean, just kind of, I've just always, I don't know, loved soccer. So it's always something that's been been there. I mean, didn't end up starting writing till about 2019. And even for then, it was for fun. And I think... Yeah, I mean, from there, it's just always been a passion of, okay, there's so much going on in terms of 2019 when I started, like MLS was really starting to to hit a good spot. CPL had just started, so it was, okay, let's see what's going on here. The Canadian national teams, obviously the women were at a great spot, felt like the men were on the cusp of something, so it's just, it was nice to to, to hop on that, just do my best to, to write, because there was a passionate fan base. You could always see that right away. I mean, I've always been a Canadian soccer fan, so I kind of knew that, uh, but just there felt like there was a, a lack maybe of, of stuff. I mean, obviously, I'd always read Peter's stuff, people like John Molinero stuff. But, you know, beyond that, there wasn't many, many people. So I figured I'd give it a go. And now today it's just been so much fun. Like that's at the end of the day. That's what I I just love waking up and it gives me, you know, a lot of a lot of joy to, to go out and do that. So from there, it's been OK. It's it's great to, to see where everything has gone over four years. And I don't think that fun has left. It doesn't really almost feel like say like a job or career maybe it's too early for even to, to be throwing out those words it feels weird in my head just because I enjoy doing it and I enjoy having that passion for it first of all every time Alex says that he read my stuff when he was younger it always makes me feel <laughs> twice my age than I actually am and I'm not even that old so thank you once again for bringing that up um but mine's pretty much the same as Alex in that I you know, I had a passion for sports, but mostly soccer when I was growing up. I played it constantly when I was a kid. I played at a relatively high level in BC, but at that time, there weren't a lot of pathways. Really, it was either university or you somehow get discovered and maybe go from there. And even then, your chances were minuscule. So when I was 15, 16, I started writing on my own. Some friends had some websites they started off. That's how I kind of got into the writing side. I never saw myself as a writer, really. Mm -hmm. But the more I did it, the more I enjoyed it. And then once school started, I just tried to get stuck in, tried to write as much as I could. And eventually after graduating, I got the internship at Sportsnet and parlayed that into some freelance roles, really across the digital side, associate editor, social media editor, occasionally doing some soccer articles, which Alex, as he pointed out there, read constantly as much as he could. <laughs> and then uh, just, you know, really ever since I'd say 2016, 17, it's just gradually grown where more and more opportunities start to pop up as the sport starts to get more popular. And I mean, case in point, this world cup is going to be massive. 
I think for for really fans of the game, for media members, for the players, everybody associated with with Canadian soccer, and that's what's so exciting. I, I just wanted to jump in on what, what you just said there, Peter. Are you are and and the the question goes for Alex as well. Are you guys optimistic that more jobs and pathways will open for journalists, like for Canadian soccer media after this World Cup? Well, what's interesting is. For the last couple of weeks, a lot of outlets have asked me, hey, are you available to do a piece on this or a piece on that? And what the common theme is, is none of them are really based in Canada, which is what's interesting because MLS reached out to me in June 2021 when it looked like Canada was going to get to the Ocho. And then they brought me on to cover everything related to the national team. And some outlets in the UK have reached out, some outlets in in Europe on the continent have reached out. But what's interesting is that really none in Canada have reached out. I think that's the issue is that there is such a, it's not even a monopoly, but a duopoly in media that if you don't work for one of the big two or you don't work for one soccer, then there isn't really much else out there. Now, hopefully this does show the higher ups in all of these media companies that there is a thirst there for not just Canadian soccer, but soccer in general. Like I can divulge that whenever we do Canadian soccer content, it's among the best performing articles on sportsnet.ca. Like it's, it's right up there with the baseball, with the Maple Leafs, with everybody else. So it goes to show you that there is a fan base there. People are interested. And the more, that the team gets exposure, the closer we get to the World Cup, the the higher it climbs. So it'll be very intriguing to see if maybe that has something to do with it. Because at the end of the day, a lot of these companies look at the bottom line and go, okay, are we getting value for money here? So maybe that is what maybe spurs them to give people more opportunities and maybe other media companies to, to start investing into it. Because it's very clear that there is a market for it. Yeah, it's it's kind of like a flip side to it. It's like on one side, like Peter mentions, it's definitely going to be up to the companies. Because I mean, in terms of investing, realizing that potential is there, and that okay, they should find a way to extract it. And then, because I mean, I think it feels like the sport is again. It's like at, it's at a point where it, you see flashes where it really blows up and you feel like okay this could be a consistent thing if the interest is there one day it's probably going to be there you know the other and then on another point i think it just needs more people to continue to to go out and showcase their passion i think what's been great about this world cup qualifiers runs is you're seeing more podcasts you're seeing more articles being written because at the end of the day some people might not always like that but i think you know it's good to have more voices it's good to have more competition it's good to have that cuz i think it you know like we were talking before the show i think people deserve to to have more content and and when i think there's more content you know people realize okay if there's a lot of people doing this and people are reading their stuff and 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 really engaging with it that okay there is an interest that might be worth having a look at i guess i wanted to 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 go off that because like and as you guys know, but maybe not the listeners, the, the Canadian men's national team and women's team have had, I, I would say, a, a, a not the greatest relationship with the Canadian Soccer Federation. And I just wanted to ask you both, how do you think that's kind of maybe impact that linear progression that I think was building after Canada made the World Cup? And, and do you think this could affect... Um, you know, the team at the World Cup as well, and maybe the women's team next year at the World Cup, at their World Cup? Well, 
I don't think it'll impact performance okay. because I think that with legal representation for the players and, and them focusing on the majority of that, I think it's alleviated the pressure off of the players to to do this themselves while also focusing on their jobs, which is, of course, going out onto the pitch and performing. And I think they're aware of the magnitude of this achievement and the opportunities that are being given to them that they're going to be very focused on the task at hand. So I don't think that's the problem per se. But the fact that we are uh, at the time of recording, we're less than three weeks away from the men opening the World Cup against Belgium, there's still no deal signed. We are, what, eight months or so away from the Women's World Cup, and there's still no deal signed, even though as of June, July, maybe August at the latest, talks were supposedly going well from both sides, at least from the women's perspective and the Federation's perspective, and yet still no deal. So the, the, the whole thing to me, it almost seems like there are opportunities there to be able to, I think, make the most of a bad situation because no doubt the CSB deal complicates things a little bit. But you, when you have imaging rights for the players, when there are opportunities there to recoup some lost money, not to mention maybe look ahead down the line and, and, and say, okay, we're going to get improved match fees, probably. We're going to get slightly improved bonuses, probably. And for them to not maybe play ball too much and for them to be on such different pages, like for example, the men never really spoke to the women before yeah. the, the they made this offer to the CSA. And then that kind of complicated the whole thing because then the women are like, well, what are you talking about? Why are you asking for this? Because equal pay isn't necessarily equal percentages, all that stuff. So it, it's just a really murky and messy situation that... Some of it probably could have been avoided if the men had gotten legal representation, but also the Federation could have avoided if they maybe had a bit of foresight and a bit of business sense to realize, hey, we got a couple of golden gooses here. Let's not ruin the opportunity. And I think it's, you know, in terms of like what's going on on the, you know, on the field, I think Peter does, you know, bring up a good point. I think that for the players, I think it's going to be fine. I mean, this sorts of stuff, you know, you see it at all levels of soccer. You see it a lot at the club level. I think at the end, like Peter mentions, on the field, it should be fine. It just hurts, I think, because it's tough for the game in Canada, especially from an outside perspective. I think those who have been around the game aren't so surprised, which I think a is kind of a, a bad thing and shows how bad things maybe have been over the last few decades. Just hasn't been really much of a, you know, people haven't cared enough to to really push on it and to to see. I mean, you see again, like Julian de Guzman was at odds with with the CSA in two thousand eight. Like this thing's been going on for for decades now. Um, what's frustrating is that it's now it's at such a key. Like I mentioned, the sports at such a key inflection point. People are tuning in. People are caring. This is what they see now. Like they were engaged. They were hooked after you know seeing Alfonso Davies score that goal in World Cup qualifiers after Canada beating the U.S. at home, the Ice Tech, all that great, great stuff. But now you you want to follow the team, and now you're really starting to see what's been going on. And uh, you know, I think it's smart for the players because the attention on that uh, you know on them has never been higher. I think this is if you're from okay, you want to send a message, you want to start to change things. I think the timing is great. But then you just look at how uh, you know that it just means that now we're in a situation where obviously a lot of this 
you know, stuff has been very what's dominated discussion around the team, which, you know, obviously you don't want heading in a World Cup. You In an ideal world, you want it to all be on the team. But at the same time, I think with 2026 on the horizon, they obviously want to make things better for 2026. And I think all parties want that. It's just with how things have come out, it's obviously led to a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of the different sides coming, uh, coming out and, and, and now having to, at first, you know, it all kind of came together. And now, obviously, I think everyone wants similar things. It's just a matter of, okay, how do you reach there? Obviously, the players, uh, you know, played their hand. And, and then, the, you know, the other sides as well play their hands. It's okay. Everyone knows what they want to suppose sitting down. Because I think for the, the growth of the game, the interest of the game, having everything set up long term is, is smart. And hopefully things can can head that way. Because I think it would all, it would, it would be great for, for the overall sport. Uh, before I transition to what you, like the on field of of the both the men's and women's team, I, could you guys just a little bit elaborate for the listeners who might not know what these deals between the men's and women's team and the CSA are like? What they're kind of pertinent to? Like, is it is it over money? Is it over like is it a collective bargaining? Could Canada not play at the World Cup perceivably because they're on strike as they were this summer, or they missed the game due to a strike? Really, it's it's a combination of issues, and this is what makes it so complicated. So I feel like it's snowballed based on the more the players found out here. So it started first with they made an initial offer for what they wanted as a cut of the World Cup prize money. So I can't remember what the initial ask was, but it was something absurd. I think it was 70 or 80 percent of it like after taxes. So it would have been 160 or 150 percent before taxes, which is just inconceivable. Um, and then basically when they went to the Federation about this, the Federation was like, well, what? wait a second, what about the women? Because the women are also entitled to some of this. And then the players were like, oh, shoot, we got to kind of get the women involved into this. And then the women obviously had a bit of a clash when it came to, well, equal percentages doesn't necessarily mean equal pay. So they got to work that out. Um, and because it's such a contentious issue, one of the reasons because of this is really one of the only revenue streams that the Federation can pull from is this World Cup prize money because Canadian soccer business, which is made up of the CPL owners, have a monopoly on the broadcasting and sponsorship revenues as a way to mitigate their losses for investing into their respective CPL clubs. So in exchange for paying the CSA about three to three and a half million dollars every year, they get a hundred percent of the sponsorship and broadcasting rights. So whatever they sell off, for example, Carlsberg came on as a sponsor for Canada soccer, CSB gets that money, all of it. And then some of that might go towards the three or three, three and a half million dollars that they owe the Federation, right? So when the players found this out, they were like, well, wait a second, what's going on? Why is the CSB taking all this money? And to be fair, I think part of it was ignorance. And I think some of us in the media were also a bit ignorant because it was right there in black and white when the agreement was reached between CSB and the CSA that, hey, we're going to take all this sponsorship and broadcasting revenues and in return, the CSA is going to get a, you know, three, three and a half million dollar stipend, basically. So that snowballed into, all right, well, where's the transparency? Then they looked at the board and thought, well, there isn't a lot of real player representation there. So we feel like we're not really well represented within the Federation. All these things started to, to bubble up. And 
So it, it's really down to all these big picture issues. Plus, going forward as well, because the U.S. Um, negotiated this equal pay deal, the player side wants a fairly similar deal. And listen, I get it. Aim for the stars. Aim for what you want. This is all part of negotiations. Um, but it's probably not feasible from the Canadian Soccer Federation because they just don't have the same sort of resources. Um, so really it comes down to everything and it all started with, well, wait a second, we can't really afford to give you all this money because we have to pay the women. And this is our only revenue stream really that we can pull from that we're relying on to be able to invest in other areas of the Federation, whether that's the youth programs and, and everywhere else. And then obviously we've seen all the various reports since then. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a tough situation in the sense that, you know, you look at the investment that was made at the time, I think, you know, it leads to the CPL and I think the CPL has been great for the developmental pathway and we've already seen it reap its rewards. And I think long-term it'll reap its rewards. You hope that the same thing turns into a women's league, arguably there should have been one from the start, but hopefully things trend that way quickly. And then you end up benefiting from that in the long term. But what also, yeah, you look at how things kind of happened. It was, you know, a situation where they didn't maybe see the foresight. They didn't see the potential of what was going to go on, uh, you know, but obviously you needed a, a men's league to host a men's world cup or co-host a men's world cup as they will. So they did what they needed to, to get that over the line. But now what that leads to is, uh, you know, where we are now a couple years on where, you know, the, Maybe they didn't predict it, but the the men's national team has their explosion. The women's national team wins the gold medal, and all of a sudden you're like, okay, maybe uh, maybe things aren't you know could have we didn't forecast things uh, the the correctly, but you know ultimately that's where things are with the the this business deal because it's tough because it, it has helped a lot, and I think ultimately that's why it's hopefully when you know they sit down and and look at you know how negotiations go it's figuring out okay how because i think everyone agrees you want cpl you want you know a women's league to to help the pathway but it's also like okay how can you also continue to help the national teams help the youth program so that long-term canada soccer ecosystem is, is working in, in in tandem and in feeding each other and uh you know long term it, it can be a you know a sport that's not say fractured as it, it has been for for so long I, I wanted to go from from that to, to the women's national team who's I mean I mean sure maybe Canada soccer is fractured but they the women's national team won the the gold medal at the Olympics last year and and they've been so successful at Olympics and they hosted a World Cup and um I wanted to just ask you guys about the team itself and they've just were drawn in, in group B of the women's World Cup that's next year in Australia with the hosts Australia Ireland and Nigeria. And how do you guys see this group for Canada and what are the expectations for this women's side at the World Cup after winning the gold medal last year? I mean, I think this is going to be a big tournament for them. I think it feels like, you know, unfortunately, we, we might have to start saying this might be Christine Sinclair's last dance. Like we, we might obviously knowing her, she could also very well play till she's 45 and has one or two more, three more major tournaments in her. But I think at this point, uh, it's starting to be your last dance. So you want to go out and do well and win, but it's going to be tough. Like the European games skyrocketed with the investment they've put other continents as well have taken a big step forward. But as Canada showed, I mean, there's a lot of talent there. They won uh, an Olympics. They've competed with some great teams over the past two years, ever since Bev Priestman's come in and done well. So I think obviously that first at the group, they have to 
to go out and win it. They have to go out and be a mentality that if they want to be a favorite, they have to play like a favorite. And what's been nice is that they've been trending that way. There were certainly some moments at this start of Bev Priestman's tenure, even post-Olympics, where you're like, okay, there's some areas to work out. Where is the offense? What's going on in midfield? Is Canada starting to be stale? And what's been nice about Priestman, she's slowly been addressing all that issue. She's kind of rejigged the midfield uh, and gotten some youth. I mean, the defense is elite. It's It's been elite for a while and that, that hasn't gone away. There's more and more talents coming up in attack. So I think you look at Canada's talent, you look at the pedigree, there's no reason why they can't go and, and do well at the World Cup next year. So although it's tough, they're going to have to to act like like favorites or, you know, or maybe some sort of favorites. I think, you know, if this is indeed Christine Sinclair's last dance, at least going out in the top four has to would, would be a great way to end it off, if not going even further than that. But well, it's, it's going to be seen. Again, it's going to be tough. Like it could be, there could be some tough matches in the round of 16. It could be in the quarterfinals. Like it's not going to be easy, but I think, uh, you know, shooting for top four should be what the team's striving for. And I think that's uh, what we've seen from them recently, at least. And they've slowly but surely started to put it together across the pitch. We knew they had the attacking talent to be able to open it up and play expansively. But since I'd say the last couple of windows, they've been putting together a more fluid looking midfield, a more balanced midfield to get some dynamism in there, but maintaining the defensive solidity that they've been able to utilize at past tournaments, whether it's the Olympics or the World Cup. Defensively, they've been very solid, even without some of their starting defenders. Like pretty much half their back line has been injured for the last couple of windows. And now they're starting to get those players back here. So if everybody stays fit, especially as we look ahead to those windows in the new year, as well as leading into the World Cup, they can get out of the group as winners. It is a balanced group for sure. It's a competitive group, but definitely attainable to top it. And then from there, really the sky's the limit. If they can get to a quarterfinal, which has kind of been the obstacle for the last couple of World Cups, then from there, you just honestly never know. And I think that they have the the balance and based on how they're progressing, they have the talent to be able to do that. Um, I want to now transition a bit to to the men's national team. What was it like covering the men's national team that eventually made the the World Cup? And what are your most fondest memories of that run? Oh, wow. I think Alex has a lot of them, many of them off the pitch. But anyways, um, <laughs> some of them were shared with me. So, um, well, in, in terms of actually covering the, the team, the moments that stand out to me, if I guess I could start there, going down to Hamilton and watching them beat the U.S. in front of, you know, what seemed like more than 9,000 people at Tim Hortons Field. And I think it's probably safe to say there were more than 9,000 people there. And just the, the the overall excitement there was, because that win, I think all but clinched Canada's spot at the World Cup. And a lot of people realized it. And j- just the reaction to it and j- just how, you know, and, and I know this sounds crazy, but just how busy the day was, like basically from start to finish, because myself, Thomas, Alex, all of us, we we went down to Hamilton. We covered the game. We come back up. I know Thomas and I had to record a post-match podcast that night. I was up until two or three in the morning editing. It, it, it was amazing. I mean, it was, yeah. it, it, it's why you get into the industry. It's for moments like that. And just the excitement the players had in speaking to us, the excitement in Herdman's voice when he spoke to us, um, you know, getting, even beating Haiti and getting into that Ocho, like it, it didn't really reverberate outside of like that tight knit Canadian soccer circle. 
but that was a big deal. And, and just seeing what it meant to everybody in that group and, and, you know, just, I think the opportunities it opened up for Alex, myself and, and other people in the industry, it was great. Um, there was obviously the, uh, the ice Teca that was incredible. I know maybe Alex can speak more to that cause he was there, but just in terms of all the moments, it, it was incredible. And just covering that team was, was really cool because no matter who you spoke to, there was this, certainly this confidence for sure, which I think carried them throughout qualifying, but there's also this a bit of, you know, humility and, and, and human element to them that made speaking to them really eye-opening and always made for great stories, regardless of the angles you took. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a, it's a great question. Cause I think ultimately looking back, it was, it was something, it was a bit of a fever dream almost. Right. But in like a good way, like it was something that just felt, you know, especially I've come into it later. So maybe even for Peter more so just he's seen, you know, a lot of the, the ups and downs. I mean, obviously I'd experienced a lot of them as, you know, maybe as a fan or growing up watching. Okay. Like, you know, the Canada Honduras 2012 or 2015, that sort of, stuff but it just felt like when I came in in 2019 it was you felt like something was coming but even then you're like okay maybe they'll make 2022 maybe they'll squeak in the back door or losing an intercontinental playoff and you're like oh they came just so close or they, they sneak in the back door uh, but it was just surreal because it felt like everything just happened and I think just on and off the pitch like on the pitch all of a sudden like the pieces were without us realizing we're slowly being put together over this three years to okay all of a sudden Jonathan David commits and you know he's scoring goals for Genk and you're like okay this is a hot prospect next thing you know he's a league one champion heading into his first world cup qualifying run like all of a sudden Alfonso Davies like we know the talent's there and he's a champions league winner you got Stefan Ustakio he commits you know, height of a knee injury. I have no idea if he's ever going to be able to return to the potential that he'd shown where, you know, at 19, 20, he was getting looks from Man City, Barcelona. All of a sudden, okay, he's playing in Portugal and doing very well. And these pieces start to come together. Atiba Hutchinson comes back. You know, Kyle Lahren finds his feet in Europe. And it all kind of came together. And then it just started to grow and snowball on the field. I think we saw that. You know, they win 4-1 four, four against Bermuda. Like, okay, that's a good start. This is maybe a game that could have been a banana peel. They batter Cayman Islands. It's a, you know, a record score. And then they start to, they beat Suriname. They take care of Haiti. They finally get to the Octo. And like, that was like, okay, it was a good step. Because it's like, okay, this team should have been able to make that round Pre- previous what you know years but they didn't but then they made it okay that that's a start but okay how are they going to do in the octo now they're with the big you know the big teams the big you know region the big nations of this region pardon me but then they started to, to to slowly perform uh there as well and i think you just seeing that growth was surreal and then just seeing it off the pitch how like at the beginning of qualifiers there was five people in the zooms talking to john herdman i remember it was very random, you know, to think, but January, 2021, there was a zoom call. I was, it was Luke's Cavallini was made available to the media and uh, there was three of us. So we basically had like a, we each asked wow. like three questions, which is just like, you look at now, like you go on a zoom call with anyone, there's like 70 people, like good luck asking yeah. more than more than a question. And you just saw how things would grow in that regard. You know, all of a sudden you, you'd tweet about Canada soccer before you'd maybe get, you know, two likes would just kind of disappear into the Twitter timeline. And now you got all these people commenting, people all of a sudden asking you like, what's going on with the national team. You got friends saying like, Oh, like, you, you know, you got the, this sort of interest growing, et cetera. And that's, what's been most surreal. And then I've just seen it personally, maybe from my career as well, where I've just, 
you know, was, was blogging for, 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 you know, to keep up because I wanted to writing about the team. And then all of a sudden you just see more eyeballs, more people engaging, more people reading. Uh, next, you know, there's, you know, growth on that side. Like, I think it was just surreal. And then what was the best about it was just how, how fun it was. Like at the same time, like it was, you look back, you're like, it was great professionally. It was great to follow along, but you know, you're there with guys like Peter, like myself, who I've gotten to know over the last few years. There's a lot of other friends that I have who are photographers or other journalists or, you know, fans as well. You know, some of my friends as well would travel to, to come watch games as well as fans and just the, the memories we'd share where as much as the game would be fun, it'd be going out to the bar after and enjoying a couple pints after a win or just meeting other people in the community, even meeting rival fans. I think after the El Salvador game, uh, one of my friends, he was in the, the Voyagers and he ran into some El Salvador fans and they got talking. He brought them to the bar and it was just funny meeting a bunch of El Salvador fans at a bar after the game. And those are just sort of the fond memories uh, that you have from those sorts of experiences. So I just say overall, it was just all encompassing, just like great to see everything that happened on and off the pitch. Especially when you think about just all the heartache and all the the slip ups and just everything that, that encapsulated that team up until this cycle. Like I was standing on the pitch with you, Alex and, and, and others waiting for, you know, Herbman to speak to us after they qualified against Jamaica and everything. Yeah. And, you know, I remember standing on the pitch and, and I was looking at the crowd which yeah, was sold out. It was, I was freezing there. cold, right? Yeah, exactly. Like it was freezing cold. No one left. Everyone was in the celebration. Everyone was cheering. And I'm just looking around thinking, I remember when I covered my first game, it was 2015 against Dominica at BMO field. I think it was, I want to say it was just a friendly. It could be wrong though. It could have been an early round. I think it was actually an early round qualifier. Now that I remember, um, and I remember the difference. There was maybe six, 7,000 people there. There was 10 or 12 of us in the press box. Um, you know, the, the team had a, a couple future players in it, like Kyle Laren, for example. Um, but to go from that to you're celebrating World Cup qualification in front of a sold-out stadium, and you have like Maxime Crippo coming up to Alex and I screaming in our faces, like, let's go! Like just, <laughs> you know, losing his absolute mind. And, you know, just seeing John Herman shaking all of our hands and just, you know, embracing the celebrations. Like it, it was just a wild, wild day. And it just kind of goes to to show you that it no matter how much heartbreak you suffer, those moments of sports happiness can be so blissful at the end of the day. <clears throat> I, I guess I just wanted to, I know being there, it was, um, I think I'm I, for three other three days after I was still cold. Um, and, uh, like I got to my seat and and there was snow all over and it was, uh, but it was amazing. It was, it was in a great, um, day. And I, I totally agree with what you said, Peter, just, it was absolute bliss. Uh, I remember getting back and with my friends and everything, I, I, I wanted to ask you guys, who in your mind was the biggest or most important person in helping Canada make the world cup? You probably have to start with John Herdman um, for obvious reasons. Cause I'll be honest, there were a couple times when I doubted whether he was the guy, um, you know, I remember after the 2019 gold cup and the Haiti debacle, I'm like, okay, well there were mistakes made for sure, but it was your first major tournament 
as men's national team coach. You only really got one, maybe two marquee games. If you throw the Mexico game, plus that quarterfinal against Haiti in there, you did lead two nil. That was a freak accident. You get one slip up as long as you make up for it. That's fine. Then the two nil against the U S happens at BMO. You're like, okay, this is what this team can do when they buy in, when they're defensively disciplined, when, when everybody is put in a position to succeed. Then the very next month, the same old issues happened. That's when I had my doubts. Now they were obviously given a massive break with the change in the qualifying format because of the pandemic and everything. But, you know, to Herman's credit, he was able to build a tactical identity. He got the buy-in and slowly, but surely it all progressed. They were able to add more and more tactical wrinkles into the team. He kept bringing in more and more dual nationals, filling out the player pool. And he was able to establish that core group, the, those, those core ideals And that really is the one thing that I really would like to ask him leading up to the World Cup is, you know, it's not like he came in early 2021 and just completely turned the program around. Like he had been there for three years when qualifying started. Yet the one thing I'd like to ask him is how come the buy-in happened there, but the buy-in didn't happen in 2019? That is the most fascinating thing. But certainly all of Canada's success starts and ends with John Herman with a couple of I guess, uh, supporting cast members like Stefan Ashtakio, like Kyle Laren, like Milan Borian, who all had m- immensely incredible performances throughout the qualifiers. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Peter uh, did a good job of uh, of touching on it, but the John Herman one was fascinating because, I mean, uh, I agree. It was There were times there was a bit ropey, but what's been fascinating about John Herdman, I think the team as a whole, is they did well to learn from lessons. Like sometimes like they made mistakes and mistakes happen. I mean, the thing is in international soccer, which is tough, is that sometimes your mistakes are costly because in a World Cup qualifier, sometimes it comes down to one game is the difference between going to a World Cup or crashing out. And, you know, there's some of the formats are so unforgiving. Like Canada's almost lucky it wasn't the old CONCACAF format where they had to enter and the, it was two legs right off the bat. And you lose those two legs, you're done for five years. Like it was a ridiculous, you know, format. And even this one, or it's four games to decide your fate. And you, but what was nice to see is how he learned from his mistakes. Like he had the Haiti debacle. Okay, what did you learn from it? Okay, you don't, you know, maybe Alfonso Davies is better suited up the pitch. And, you know, you should you know consider some some tweaks at fullbacks and whatnot okay Richie Larea commits next camp or not commits but makes his debut next camp and hasn't left lost his spot since okay they cleaned up some of the fullback issues okay they cleaned up some of the center back issues okay you get battered away against the U.S. okay maybe you should stop playing a high line I don't think they've played a high line once in, in certain games since okay you learn those sorts of things and what's nice is to see how each game they've grown like that and you've seen them you've every time they have a mistake they adjust they tweak they're constantly forming and i think you know it's been nice for a herdman as a coach sometimes coaches can be so stubborn like you can you want to play a certain way and you're like you want to be stubborn you want to play high line you want to do this and that in international soccer you can't you just don't have a choice of you see the U.S. They're maybe trying to do it. They want to play high line. They want to play in possession. Great, you play nice football, but then you 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 have issues where you're leaving great center backs at home, for example, just because you want guys who fit the system. Whereas Canada, you can't have that luxury. If you're leaving guys at home because they don't fit the system, you're, you're going to really you know handicap yourself for for no good reason. You're going to handcuff the way you're able to build. Uh, a, a team so for him to not be stubborn and for Canada it's fitting in a way that Canada embraced the style that was no style they were going to adapt they were going to be flexible tactically some days they're going to hold the ball some days they were going to counter 
And then from there, I think just seeing the players uh, who have committed have been excellent. I think for me, the biggest one, if you're going to pinpoint one, is Ustachio. I think he was kind of the one who changed everything just because there's a lot of a talented attack. There's some decent pieces defensively, but they kind of needed a glue to hold it together. Natiba Hutchinson's just one guy. Like he he couldn't necessarily do it all. But once you had Ustachio in there, you had the pieces around them. It just felt like everything clicked ever since he was inserted in there. Because you knew that Davies was there. You knew David was there. You knew Laren was always capable of exploding. Uh, You know, you look at some of the defenders as well. You knew that in the right system, they could thrive. They just kind of needed that glue to hold it all together. And I think that's been uh, Ustakio. I wanted to ask you guys, like, with the team and how well they did in qualifying, and and they they played kind of, I'd say, probably CONCACAF minnows or, or CONCACAF they play CONCACAF teams this summer and then just recently last month played Uruguay and Qatar. What do you think the recent performances against Uruguay and Qatar kind of have prepared Canada for the World Cup where the competi- competition will take a huge step up? Um, yeah. The, the ruthlessness of opponents, especially like Uruguay, for sure. Because, listen, Alex and I spoke at length about this after that game. There were certainly moments, probably like a 20, 25 minute period in that first half where the transitions defensively, at least in the midfield for Canada was non-existent and they were leaving their center backs specifically very exposed to what was a rapid Uruguayan counterattack and their deficiencies defending aerially were exposed on a couple of those opportunities, one of which was converted by Darwin Nunez. That's really what it taught me. It's that when you make those little lapses in concentration like that, they're going to punish you. Now, to Canada's credit, they did respond very well. And some might say, well, Uruguay was up 2-0. Like, they probably just ceded the initiative. They didn't want to give up any chances. And sure, that's partially true. But also, Kyle Laren doesn't take a heavy touch. Or Jonathan David maybe controls the ball a little quicker or just gets a shot off a little quicker. It's a 2-1 game, and suddenly the complexion of that match changes. So it it, it taught us a few things. First of all, that they're going to have to be a lot more compact in the midfield and a lot more defensively responsible in the midfield, which is why I think they're going to at times switch to a trio just for maximum protection and whatnot. But then second, that they can still adapt into those situations and still keep their cool, which Canadian teams of the past have not been able to do. So as long as they get that clinical finishing, then I think that they'll be just fine. They might not win a game, but at the very least, they're not going to get embarrassed and they're going to give a good account of themselves, which is what I think the majority of realistic Canadian fans should expect and will probably end up getting. I think the learning lesson is going to be is that at the World Cup, in CONCACAF, say, they got, you know, part of the reason they did so well is that they were organized. They they maximized their talent. They took their best players. Their best players played like their best players. Um, but what's different at the World Cup is all 32 teams are pretty darn good. Even you look at the bottom, like, oh, you know, maybe you look at, oh, I'll just throw a random example, like a Saudi Arabia. You're looking at Saudi Arabia, like, oh, maybe you'd like to play against them. Saudi Arabia is still a good team. They had a decent 2018 World Cup. They caused some trouble. Like every team's good, so all that to say. Everyone's there for a reason. So I think at that point, it becomes less so this player can do that because most guys have world-class players. You look at a guy, a team like Morocco, they've got a few world-class players, so you can't say, oh, there's a huge talent gap. So what it comes down to is execution. It comes down to moments. It comes down to those little things because everyone's going to be organized. It can't be like, it's not going to be, a, oh, you're going to 
overly tactically masterclass. Like even if Canada and John Herdman, and I'm sure they know this, even if they go out and have their most outstanding, like they, they have a scientifically perfect game plan, even then it's not going to make like, a, they're not going to go out and win five, nothing because of that. Like, cause that's the margins at this level. So I think what it shows is that it's all about just executing your moments. It's sometimes when the game gets chaotic and what's great about the, the game of soccer is that it's chaotic. It, it's, you know, there's moments where things fall apart and that's what, where teams win games. That's what, where I've come to learn. It's, you know, teams can be tactically disciplined for 85 minutes, but you give up three poor midfield transitions and you allow a great attacker to break in. He's going to score one of them. And that's what happened in the Uruguay game. You look overall, they played a solid, good enough game against the World Cup, you know, a top World Cup team, a top 12 team. But what happens is you gave away two transitions. One turned into a free kick, ends up in the net. The other one ends up, you know, being a header off of a, a, a lapse in concentration off of a, a throw in. And all of a sudden you're you're, you're trailing 2-0. And I think that's what's going to be the key difference in these games is, again, it's not going to be, there's not going to be as fine of a margin as some think maybe talent wise in some cases, but it's going to come down to the difference with the Belgium says Kevin De Bruyne. He's not, he's not going to waste his chances. You know, the def- defenders of Belgium, if Thibaut Courtois, he's going to make the most of his moments, you know, no matter who's the striker of Belgium, if it comes to him in the box, he's going to finish. So if you're Canada, when the ball comes to you in the box, you got to finish when you have a chance to take a shot or make an aggressive pass, you have to go for it. When you're defending, if you have to take a foul, you take a foul, you have to make sure you get behind the ball and just make sure you minimize those moments that end up deciding soccer games. Cause that's ultimately what we've learned is that soccer game is moments. Do, do you guys think that potentially like an advantage of Canada at the world cup is that they have those game breakers that they have a guy like Alfonso Davies, Jonathan, David, Tejon Buchanan, even Ustakio, to a certain extent in terms of that they can sure in the Uruguay game, as you guys mentioned, they were the ones that kind of had the slip ups and it led to the two nil defeat, but they could almost play that kind of game and be successful at the world cup. Yeah, it's massive. And case in point, Davies had six key passes against Uruguay. He was very clearly one of the team's best players in that game, if not the team's best player. And that's what you need from guys like that. David had a bit of an off day, but he got into the positions to score. And you back him nine times out of 10 to put one of those chances away if he gets the opportunity again. So as long as that trend continues, they'll be fine. The interesting side of it is going to be what happens when these teams, whether it's Morocco, Croatia, Belgium, see the initiative at times in that game and dare Canada to break them down? Are they going to be able to do that? They've kind of done it in CONCACAF, but against a team of that caliber, are they going to be able to do that? And that's where guys like Davies are going, and as well as a Shakio and, and players of his ilk, Buchanan as well, are going to need to pick the lock. And I think on the surface, I'm fairly confident they can do it, but it's going to be a major challenge. One to especially Davies's credit, though, that he is starting to get more comfortable in. If, if you see his performances for Bayern recently, he's definitely becoming a lot more savvy in terms of, you know, drifting inside and taking on defenders and releasing the ball a bit quicker, too, which is going to be massive because nothing will pick apart a compact defense like fluid, quick passing and movements off the ball. And yeah, I think ultimately in these big games, uh, we talk about moments. Well, who tends to step up in moments? It's your best player. So I think for Canada, they're going to need them too. And it's great that they have that capacity. Like that's what's exciting about seeing Stefan Ustakio go out in the Champions League and score clutch goals and and have big defensive moments. That's what's key about Alfonso Davies 
winning a Champions League, but also playing a big part in that Champions League, et cetera. You go to Jonathan David, we don't have to to, to go through that to John Buchanan. Uh, because again, yeah, that's when you, you're in, especially in these tournaments, you can only go as, as far as your best players take you. I think when Canada made that run of the semifinals in the Gold Cup last year, what got them there was Stefan Ustakio having kind of his breakout party for for Canada. So I think it's going to be key that they have those sorts of guys now because that's the difference that they didn't have before. Right? You know, you see that sometimes as well at the World Cup where a team will make it. I think maybe Panama 2018, they do a great job of navigating their own qualifiers, but then they just get battered because at the end of the day, you know, very organized team, et cetera. But at the same time, they didn't have those game breakers and it ended up being going rough for them. So I think for Canada, it does help that they have those guys because in the end, it's again, it's going to be super tough against Belgium, Croatia, Morocco teams, good teams, organized teams, teams filled with difference makers. But what's nice is that you look at those games now and Canada at least has a threat. Canada has their, their own you know, abilities to capitalize. You know that they're going to go in those games. They're going to go out swinging. And in the end, if you know, using the boxing metaphors here, if some of them land, maybe they end up getting that, that golden punch and, and they end up getting through. So uh, I think that's what's nice is that you have to, there's a bounce of no, okay, this is going to be tough. This isn't going to be easy. I think that's the tough thing. So you get excited. Like, yeah, Canada has a good team. Yeah. You know, I think we could admit that Canada is a good team, but it's not going to be easy. I think just not finishing fourth is going to be a, a tall task, let alone exiting from the groups. But what is nice is that Canada has the potential to do things that they didn't before, uh, which gives them a chance in these games. And they're, But to do so, they're going to need their best players to be their best players. And then from there, you know, just avoid those sorts of mistakes. I guess I guess what I'd want to ask you both is you see you both seem that to to suggest that it'd be very hard for them to to make it out of the group and 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 probably I guess win even a game. What do you think you mentioned like a realist like it might not be realistic, Peter, that um that they they even win a game. What would be a good result and and what are your expectations for Canada at the World Cup? The more I think about it, I feel like they're going to go down the path that an Iran or Morocco went through in 2018 when they were in that Spain and Portugal group and that they're going to be a tough out. They're going to be in it in on the final day and they're not going to get embarrassed. They're not going to get blown out. They're going to have their opportunities to win games against those bigger teams, but they might ultimately just miss out just because of those one or two differences in quality. And that's nothing to be ashamed of, really, especially for a team that is probably four years ahead of where they thought they'd be. So that's how I see it probably going for them if I were to decide. I think, yeah, in terms of expectations, I think a win, just shoot for a win. I don't think that's horribly unrealistic to say, you know, to go out and get a win. And just try to make things happen. I think this for Canada, what's nice is that you're kind of playing with house money here and it's a chance to really just prove yourself, like go out and go against Belgium and Croatia and play without fear. Of course, play discipline, playing without sometimes what gets mixed up playing without fear doesn't mean like going gung ho and leaving yourself exposed and losing for nothing, but you played without fear. You have to go about it the right way. Uh, But I think if they can go do that, have a respectable first two games, maybe you scratch out a point, that's good. I think you have to be realistic. Like, yeah, of course, you like, oh, they can go beat Belgium and Croatia. That's going to be tough. Like, just get it and getting a point. And then you head into that last game with Morocco. If you're still alive by then, that's phenomenal. That's fantastic. You've already beat the odds. And then, you know, go out and try to, to take on Morocco. And just, again, in all three games, just 
I, I think this is a chance to really just again express yourself, play your soccer. Uh, because in 2026, it's going to be a different story. There, you're going to have four years. You're going to have a chance to mature. You're going to have more tests. Some of these guys are going to be in their prime. Okay, then you can start to to raise expectations. But with it being the first time, you can go in there with low expectations. But also at the same time, you want to go out there and respect yourself. You don't want to go out there and leave all three times having been battered. So I think for Canada, just going out and aiming for a win uh, and some goals to to kind of get those monkeys off the back would be huge. And then from there, just see what happens. Uh, who is the player that you think might be like the most important player for Canada if they're to succeed next month or this month, I guess, in the World Cup? I've kind of decided that I think Ashtakio is the most important player when you're playing in CONCACAF. I think the most important guy when you're playing at that level is going to be Alfonso Davies. I know it's a very simple answer, but he's going to be the game breaker. You need him to be your best player. And you know, that's not to say that Ashakia won't be important. That's not to say that Buchanan won't be important or, you know, take your pick here, really. But if you want to compete at that level, and that I think is probably the difference that a Canada has in 2022, that's say in Iran or Morocco, maybe not so much Morocco because they did have some talent in 2018, didn't have individually in 2018 when they were trying to get out of their group. So that could be the one real X factor here. And the way Davies is playing, he's going to enter this World Cup on a real high. So it's going to be fascinating to see how he kind of rises up to this challenge and and kind of puts Canada on his back. I mean, a lot of good answers to there. Since Peter went for Alfonso Davies, I'm going to go with Stacchio. I just think in terms of you look at all the guys like Buchanan, Davies, David, those three, I think are all going to be very huge, especially Buchanan, because everyone knows Davies and David, but Buchanan's kind of that forgotten third guy and he can pop up. But I think for any of them to have a, even a platform to succeed, they're going to need Ustakio to, to, you know, to, to do his thing in midfield, to get them the ball, to hold things down defensively. So I just think because of that, I think he's going to kind of allow them that platform, just especially because the midfield is going to be such a battering zone in all three games you look at all the guys they're going up against De Bruyne and Modric you're going to need to have some sort of solidity in midfield and I think for Canada that starts and ends with Ustakio so I think of course Davies is going to be huge because again he's the kind of guy that will break open games but I think the guy that will keep them in games in the first place is Ustakio which is why he's so key because you can have a guy like Davies but it won't matter if the game's 3-0 and Canada's getting overrun in the middle so I mean there's no bad choice really but I'm gonna go Ustakio. And I, I guess what is this team's biggest weakness uh, or area of weakness going into the World Cup and, and and that you guys have, you think they really have to address to be competitive? I'm torn between uh, their defending in the air and I would just say the overall pace in the midfield. Now, I think the overall pace in the midfield will be countered if they play a trio. I think there's a way to get around that because there are some areas of the team where they're maybe not the quickest, like center back, for example, and they've been able to cope just fine. But I do think that their lack of aerial prowess, especially in guys like Johnston, provided he is playing in that hybrid center back slash wing back role, 
that's where they could get exposed, especially with some of the teams they're going to be facing. So that would be my one area of concern, which is why guys like Steven Vittoria and even Kamal Miller, he has improved in that area over the last year or so, are going to be so decisive, which is why it might not be a bad idea just to park Steven Vittoria at the back post, make sure everything is cleaned up there because they've been punished one too many times in some games. Yeah, I think Peter does a great point on that. I think to add, I would say, midfield transitions. I think that's something that Canada does have to watch out for. You look at all the goals they've conceded off the top of my head since the last few months. Uh, the two goals against Uruguay, the two goals against Honduras, you go the goal against Panama in, in, in March, the goal against Costa Rica. They've all kind of come off these midfield transitions where they maybe lose the ball and they don't get into shape quick enough. And I think what really was so key with Canada when they adjust this before they tried to play a high line and they just get burned. They didn't have the speed back there. They'd get burned. They give up. You'd think of the Haiti game where it was just watching chaos. It was watching fire. It was just Haiti was running at them and it was, you know, it was rough. But what changed if you look at World Cup qualifiers, Canada realized, okay, when you lose the ball, you get numbers behind the ball. And you look at some of their best victories, like I think of the U.S. game at home in Hamilton. What they did so well is even though they're missing Eustachio, they're missing Hutchinson, they're missing Davies, they got guys behind the ball so well. Every like I can't think of a time where Christian Pulisic was running at a one-on-one. It was always a 1v2, a 1v3. And when, you know, guys like Alistair Johnson, guys like Kamal Miller all these guys they, they were that's what they'll thrive in i mean it's always going to be tough if you're no matter who you are if you're going up a 1v1 against a kevin de bruyne that's probably a losing fight you can be it doesn't matter if you're the top defender in the world or if you're playing for for a pub team so i think for canada just li- being strong in their midfield transitions is going to be key because i do wonder tactically if teams like belgium and croatia are going to see the uruguay game and try to dare them to beat them in possession and get numbers up the pitch knowing that Canada A is better in transition than B that they'll be more open in transition so knowing that that Canada is going to be have to be okay we're comfortable playing with the ball that's not an issue we've seen Canada play well in possession but knowing that okay A you have to be more composed on the ball and then when you do lose the ball whatever costs you get guys back even if you have to eat a few yellows there's five subs you're almost better off having a fresh guy on the field and you know you, you take the yellow and you, you eat that so I think for midfield transitions are going to be key because I feel like that's where they could give up most of their goals in these sorts of games. But before I let you guys go, I wanted to know what would your starting 11 be for Canada in their first game against Belgium? As it stands, I would say I'd go Borean, John, and then from right to left, Johnston, Vittoria, Miller, uh, Atakubi, and then from right to left at that point, I guess you would, to me, I'd probably go something like, say, Buchanan. This is provided everybody's fit, of course, and kind of up to speed. But Buchanan kind of plays in like that hybrid wingback slash, you know, forward role. Um, then you have, I, I would go with a trio of either Estacchio, Hutchinson, and then pick between Osorio and Hoylet. Because Hoyle can also play in, in a pretty free role himself. And then you fill it out with Davies and with David. That's personally how I would go. But frankly, the, the, there's so many options and so much tactical fluidity. They could go with a box midfield. They could go with a three box three. They could go with a duo. I don't think that would be the best idea, but they have the personnel and the ability to do that. That honestly, it, it really all depends what they want to do. I've kind of flip-flopped on it myself, but I think I've settled on for now. I think you're going to see Boyan in goal. You're going to see a back three. 
in possession, at least Johnston, Victoria Miller from right to left. Uh, you're going to have your wingbacks be added. Could be on the left Buchanan on the right. I got to stack you Hutchinson in midfield. And then I think like a front three in possession of Hoylet, uh, David and Davies. Mm-hmm. And I think off the ball, it's going to turn into like a four, four, two. I think we've seen that. I think from there it goes Johnston, Victoria Miller out of be at the back. The midfield four will be something along the lines of Buchanan, Hutchinson, uh, you know, Ustakio Davies, and then you allow Hoylet, you know, since he does do a lot of hard running for Reading, you, you may be having him in the front two will allow him to save his legs a bit offensively. And you, him and David will lead the line in the 4-4-2 off the ball. So that's kind of how I've settled on things. But there's a few tweaks to be had. I think Richie Larray, you do wonder if he could fit in there, depending on his fitness, just because he does bring that edge. You look at a guy, if Jonathan Azorio is healthy, he brings that sort of creativity that you're going to need against these technically strong teams. But I think for the most part, other than those two guys, or maybe if he smell Coney impresses enough to to draw his way. And I think those are probably going to be as close to the 11 guys you end up seeing uh, in the opening yeah. match. I'm more and more convinced that Junior Hoylet's going to start that Belgium game because yeah. if there's one thing we've learned about Hoylet, he shines in big matches like this. And Herman is going to rely on those veteran players to kind of guide them through that. So I, I honestly do believe that if there's kind of a, a tie between him and Osorio, it's probably going to be Hoylet, especially because he can play in a trio in possession you know, as part of that midfield trio, he can kind of shuttle into a freer role, maybe out wide or centrally, what have you. So there's so many possibilities with him. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, guys. I've really, really appreciated this. And I just wanted to kind of give you the floor and uh, to to what are you guys working on? Any pieces coming like uh, uh, on, on deck and anything uh, exciting coming up for Northern football for your podcast? Loaded question. I'll try to get through it as much as I can here. Uh, so yeah, you can follow Northern Football, first of all, at Northern Football across all platforms, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, all that. Uh, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And we are planning on doing the same sort of setup we've done throughout qualifying. We're going to have pre and post-match shows after each game, including the Bahrain and Japan friendlies. So stay tuned for all of those. Also, some pretty more exciting stuff coming in the pipeline. We shall see if we can get some confirmation on some of those things, but should be some fun things coming. Myself personally, follow me at Galindo PW on Twitter, and I will be having lots of content on Sportsnet related to Canada and the World Cup. Same with MLSsoccer.com. I'm going to be doing some pieces for a couple of um, betting outlets in the UK as well, covering Canada. So look out for those as well when the time comes. Yeah, I mean, for myself, I mean, there's yeah a lot of good stuff with Northern football to start, and uh, for for me personally, I'll just be I'll be here in Canada, enjoying it from from afar. So I'll I'll be a lot of a lot of stuff on One Soccer written, you know, lots of audio stuff as well. Be at Northern football, One Soccer, hopefully a lot of a lot of interesting stuff uh, being planned there uh, in terms of you know shows, in terms of TV stuff, in terms of writing and all that. So stay tuned for that and. I mean, lastly, just want to extend a big thanks to you, Alex, for having us on. It was great to to chat soccer. I appreciate the the invite. So shout out to, to you for mm-hmm. that. Yeah. And the invite's always open, by the way. We're always happy to chat. Thanks so much, guys. I love your podcast. I, I try to listen to it as much as I can. And I'm really excited to, to what you guys have on the horizon uh, when uh, the World Cup starts. And what is it? Less than three weeks. So thanks so much for coming on.